You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, y'all. Good morning. It's good to see all of y'all. And uh, Rob, thanks for sharing your story. Uh, love, like you said, love getting to hear people's story of how uh, Jesus came after them and their response to that. And I uh, appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Really looking forward to our time uh, together today as we continue our series, The King Has Come. And uh, we're full swing Christmas. I don't know about y'all, but in my house, we're full swing Christmas, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, we watched one of our all-time favorite Christmas movies this, uh, this past week, uh, Home Alone, right? Incredible classic. Justin and I were just talking before the service. We both think that it's our favorite Christmas movie of all time. We're not in the sentimental, like, you know, it's a wonderful life. Like, give us people getting beat up on Christmas time. That's the way to go. Love that movie. During the movie, um, my kids, they they, they start talking about who their favorite character is. And to my surprise, every single one of them picked this guy. Marv. You remember Marv? And they all, they all said that he was their favorite. And I don't know if that should worry me and Krista that like they were all drawn to the villain in the story to be their favorite character, but like that's, that's who they picked. And so anyways, as I was working on this morning's message, I started wondering about things that I think probably only pastors ever wonder about because we're goofy this way sometimes. But I started thinking, I wonder if we were to pick our favorite character in the first Christmas story. Who would we pick? Like, who would you pick? If you had to pick your, first, your favorite character in the first Christmas story, would you pick Mary? It's a good pick. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. You, yeah, of course, you and Ricky Bobby, you pick baby Jesus, right? That's the way, the way to go. But you might, you might, be, you might gravitate to, to, to Joseph or the wise men or the shepherds. Like, I don't know. I don't know really who you, who you would pick. But I do know that none of y'all would pick the villain in the story. I know y'all would pick King Herod. You know, if you're familiar with the story, you know, King Herod, a terrible guy. None of y'all would say, okay, King Herod is my favorite character in the first Christmas story. However, if I'm honest, he's probably the character that I relate with the most. And I'm probably not alone in that. But for you to understand why I say that, you, you got to know a little bit about King Herod. And so today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to study this passage, and in doing so, we're going to do a little contrast, right? We're going to contrast King Herod with King Jesus. And as we do this, here's what I want you to be thinking about, all right? Here's the question I want you to wrestle with. Which king do you most resemble? Which king do you most resemble? Okay? So if you have your Bible, you want to go to Matthew 2, we're going to look at that. I'll have the slides up here for you too, but we're going to jump into this. Matthew chapter 2 begins this way. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east come to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Okay, why was he disturbed? Well, because when you're the king and you hear that people are asking, where is the new king? That would bother you, right? And especially King Herod. See, this is why it says King Herod was disturbed because of all people, of all kings, like this would greatly disturb him because he was set on being king to the day that he died. So you need to know a little bit about King Herod. So let me give you a little background, all right? 
First of all, King Herod, uh, he was appointed the king in Judea, 37 BC, by Caesar Augustus. And so from Jerusalem, he enforced Roman rule in that region of the world in Judea. Uh, now, he was this incredible visionary. Like, he really was. He was set on building a great kingdom and uh, being a great king. And so he, he really wanted to live up to his nickname, uh, Herod the Great. Like, that's really what he wanted to be about. And he went about trying to be Herod the Great. One of the ways is by doing all these incredible building projects. The guy had built for him seven palaces in the region of Judea. Seven gigantic palaces. One of the most famous of them was located in Masada. And I don't know if you all are familiar with that area, but Masada is not, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. But he has this giant palace built in Masada. And to give you a little bit of idea of what this guy is like, the reason that he built the palace in Masada is because, according to history, the Jewish Bible, our Old Testament, uh, King David, who the Jews revered as like the greatest king of Israel, well, King David hid in Masada in a cave in Masada when he was fleeing from King Saul. And so Herod the Great says, okay, well, if you think David is the greatest king, but he just hid in a cave in Masada. I'm going to actually build a palace in Masada. And he builds this three-tier palace. This is what archaeologists believe it looked like. It's, you know, destroyed now. But, like, this three-tiered incredible palace out in the middle of nowhere. Just to say that I'm, <laughs> you, think, you think King David's great? No, I'm great. I'm Herod the Great. Like, that's, that's, that was his whole point. Like, there was, he had pools installed in this. He had hot tubs installed in this. There is no, I don't know if y'all know this, but there's no water in the desert. This is in the desert. He crafted aqueducts to channel water 17 miles to his palace so he could swim in the pool on top of this three-tiered thing in the middle of nowhere. I mean, he's like, ah, oh, look at me. I'm great. And then he also was set on showing all of you know, the Jews in Jerusalem, because this is out in the middle of nowhere. It's like, in case you don't get to see that, uh, I want you to make sure that you know that I really am great. So in Jerusalem, he rebuilt the temple, Solomon's, the temple that Solomon bought, the, built originally. And you all know Solomon was also this greatly revered king of Israel. Well, he says, okay, you want to know, I want you to know I'm, I'm greater than Solomon. And so I'm going to rebuild the temple. And he does, he, he hires 18,000 people, they spend 40 years rebuilding the temple. Here's a picture of what his temple looked like. And uh, he just wanted to make the point. Look, I'm, I'm great. See, I, 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 uh, I make things great again. Like King Herod, he was probably the originator of the, of the motto, I make, you know, make things great again. He was all, it's all what he was about. Okay, and then, if that, if that wasn't enough to prove his greatness... He says, okay, to really, really, really be great, I, I, need to, I need to really control the shipping in the region. But the problem was that all the coastlands of Judea was like marshlands. Couldn't build on it. They didn't have a port, so he couldn't control the shipping channels. And so he says, okay, well, you know what? That's not going to stop me. And he undergoes this crazy construction project. I mean, it was, it was huge in scale. Like, I've read way too much about it this week, and I can't tell you any of the details because I don't have time. But it was, it was massive. And he drains the marshland 
in the area on the coast, and he builds the greatest, the biggest, the largest port in the known world right there on an area of land that had never been able to be built on. And he builds a palace there. He builds this giant, I mean, here it is. He, he names this place, the city that he builds, he names it to suck up to Caesar. He names it Caesarea, right? And so this is in this incredible place that could not be built on. He's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to own the shipping lands. I'm going to be great. So I'm going to build where you can't build. This is the kind of person I am. I am Herod the Great. So now here's the thing. Think about this. This is over 2,000 years ago. He's like, how, do you, how in the world... Did he get, you know, the, the, the materials for this? How do you get the, the workforce for this? How do you get the money to pay for this, right? Well, here's how. He taxes people like crazy. See, under Herod, um, most you know, scholars believe about 80 to 90 percent of the, of the people living in Judea, the area that he was king over, uh, 80 to 90 percent of them were uh, it, you know, in agriculture, fishing or, or in farming. And so he would tax that. So he taxed uh, 25 to 33 percent of all agricultural crops was taxed. They had to hand that over to him. And on the fishing side, 50 percent of every fish that, of all the fish he caught had to go to him. Now this was in addition to uh, the, the Roman uh, Caesar tax, which was 12.5 percent. So Herod is adding on to that tax that they had to pay to Caesar. And then Herod would add even more taxes to that because he had uh, building and transit taxes. He had temple taxes. He had other taxes. See, uh, scholars believe that the people under Herod's rule paid about 80 to 90% of all of their income to taxes. See, yeah. Herod liked to be thought of as Herod the Great, but I, when I think about him, I think, man, he, he was Herod the served king. Herod the served king. It's because the reason that Herod was great, the reason he could accomplish all that he accomplished, was because his greatness depended on the ability to force others to serve him. Taxing, enslaving, I mean, whatever it is, it's all about you serve me to make me look great. Now, another thing that you should know about Herod is that, like I alluded to earlier, he was dead set on remaining on the throne until the day that he died. And so, he, uh, even though he had 11 wives and 43 kids, he was very suspicious of all of them. <laughs> and as a result, he, he had a number of his sons killed and one of, one of his wives killed and then a lot of his extended family members killed and he had three of the high priests of Jerusalem killed like anytime he thought that someone was going as a threat to him he would have them he would have them killed because he didn't want anyone to come after him to kill him so that then they remove him from as king and so he would kill them first that's the type of guy King Herod was see uh he was a served king. Herod was committed to staying on the throne above anything else. His greatness depended on his ability to force others to serve him. All right, so back to Matthew 2. When the magi show up or the wise men show up 
in Jerusalem, and they start asking the question, like, where is the one that's been born the king of the Jews? Like, that greatly disturbs him. But Herod is about 70 years old at this time, and his health is terrible, and he's dying of, like, kidney disease and amongst many other things. And, he, like, he's in terrible pain, and yet he is incredibly bothered by this question because he's like, no, no, no one's, no one, there's no new king. I'm still alive. I'm the king. And so he hears this question. He starts taking action. Pick back up the story. Verse 4 says this. When he had uh, called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they would cite what was prophesied in the book of Micah. Here's what it says. It says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Okay, but, you know, King Herod, he had no desire to worship the child, right? See, uh, in the church, we often make the mistake of treating the word uh, worship synonymously with the idea of, of singing, and, but it's, it's not uh, just singing, right? I mean, y'all, y'all know that, right? Like, worship is, is the idea of, of what you do when you're in the presence of someone that induces awe. And worship leads you to surrender yourself or submit yourself fully to them. And Herod clearly had no desire to ever do that. And so he sends the Magi to Bethlehem to search carefully for the child and then report back to him so he could kill him. We see this play out later in this passage. But here's how the story continues. Verse 9 says, After they had heard the king, talking about the Magi, getting these orders from Herod, he says, They went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the, the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, many of y'all might be wondering, like, hey, what's up, what's up with the star? Okay, and I'm not spending a lot of time here because, honestly, I don't really know. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what this was. But most, you know, biblical scholars, they believe that the Magi who were from the east were really influenced by Daniel, the Old Testament uh, prophet Daniel. Remember, he was exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon in the east and that he, uh, Daniel wrote a lot about these prophecies of a coming king and a coming eternal kingdom. It's like the second half of the book of Daniel. If you want to read that, it's pretty fascinating. And so they, uh, most biblical scholars believe that these magi were influenced by Daniel and they were looking to the stars for signs that this king and this kingdom were coming and they saw something that made them think that perhaps this king was here, this kingdom was at hand. And so they get up and they start following this sign and it leads them, miraculously, it's wild, right? <laughs> but it leads them. To Jesus. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so Herod is uh, five miles away 
in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem, just five miles away. And he is waiting for these magi to come back and report to him when they find the child. Because, he, you know, Herod, he's used to everyone serving him. That's what he is. He's a served king. So he says, I gave you orders. You're going to go do what I want you to do. You're going to find this child. You're going to report back to me. Tell me where he is. So that he could go and kill this child because he's also completely committed to remaining on his throne, right? But the Magi, they don't do that. Verse 13, when they, the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and he took the child and his mother, and during the night, Escaping in the middle of the night, he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And this is known as the killing of the innocents. And what scholars tell us about the population of villages such as Bethlehem at this time period is that there probably would have been about 12 to 15 boys in that village, in that vicinity at that point in time. So probably about 12 to 15 sons were killed that day. I mean, it's just horrific, horrific. But many of y'all might know that there's no account of this in any kind of his history. There's outside of Matthew's account. Um, Josephus didn't talk about it. But uh, if you read Josephus' accounts, which much of the stuff I've shared with you today comes from about Herod's life, you know, like these kind of atrocities took place often under his rule. And no one familiar with King Herod questions whether he was capable of such an order. In fact, just to highlight this, most likely within a year of these events in Matthew 2, Jesus' birth, the Magi coming, all that, within about a year of that, King Herod died. He died of this kidney failure and all the stuff that he had going on. He died a terribly painful death. And he knew it was coming. And so five days before his death, Josephus tells us, five days before his death, he he commands that all of the uh, uh, wealthy, influential Jewish leaders in Jerusalem be rounded up and detained so that, and then he wanted to have them killed the hour that he died so that it would ensure that everybody in Jerusalem would be mourning on the day that he died. Because he knew that if he didn't do that, then when the word got out that King Herod, Herod the Great, the greatly served king, had died, everyone would have been rejoicing. There would have been parties in the street. And he couldn't have that. So he said, kill every, all these influential people so that everyone will be mourning. That's the kind of guy King Herod was. Not really so great, huh? Okay, now there's, a, uh, there's another king that this passage talks about, right? And here's what we learn about him from this. See, we learn that though he was born king of the Jews, the leaders in Jerusalem didn't even know that he had been born. And it took magi from the east to alert the kingdom that this king 
had come. And when they got word that he had been born, they did not go after him to seek him out to bow down and worship him, but they went after him to seek him out so they could kill him. And so this king, along with his parents, are forced to flee their homeland as political refugees. Like so many people in the history of this world and so many people right now having to flee their homeland as a result of incredible violence. Jesus and his parents had to flee Israel, run off to Egypt in the middle of the night. Now, listen. If King Jesus had come to be served, then this isn't how his life would have begun, would it? Yet those are some of the very first things that we know about him. And if we keep reading in Matthew, we learn that his family does eventually return back to Israel once King Herod has died. But they don't settle in an area, a prominent area. They settle in Nazareth. Just like hick town, if you will. Middle of nowhere. He gets actually looked down upon later in his life because he's from Nazareth. And as he grows up, you keep reading in Matthew, you see that Uh, He doesn't ever occupy a palace. He doesn't have seven palaces built for him. In fact, he tells one person that says, I want to follow you. He says that person in Matthew chapter 8, he says this. He says, uh, foxes and dens, and foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, uh, King Jesus didn't have any academic credentials, military power, or social status. For his greatness wasn't based on getting others to serve him. His greatness was displayed in how he served others. In fact, in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, he summed up greatness for his followers in this way. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And then at the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, he did not ascend to a throne, but a cross where he died for the sins of you and for me so that we could have eternal life in him, the greatest act of service in all of human history. See, King Jesus is nothing like King Herod. And yet there is no disputing that he was the far greater king. For chances are most of y'all hardly knew anything about King Herod until this morning. But here we are in 2020 in Austin, Texas, gathered to worship King Jesus. In fact, it's the year, friends, it's the year 2020 because the world's entire calendar system is based upon the date of this man's birth. Like, How amazing is that? How can that be? Well, it's because Jesus was not just a king. It's because he was the king of kings. He is the king of kings. And as we saw in John 1 last week, he's God in the flesh come to reveal what God is like. And friends, hear this. This is what 
we learn that God is like. God is a servant king. God is a servant king. See, the contrast between King Herod and King Jesus is going to be more stark. King Herod, uh, his greatness depends on his ability to force others to serve him. And Herod was committed to staying on the throne above anything else. But King Jesus, the servant king, See, Jesus' greatness was displayed in how he humbly served others. And Jesus willingly left his throne in heaven, though it meant that he, God the Son, would die for us. See, friends, that's a tale of two kings, if you will. Now, I've got a question for us as we, before I wrap this things up. The question for all of us is this. Who is your king? Who is your king? Now, to be clear, the options are not, is King Herod your king or is King Jesus your king? The options are, are you your king or is Jesus your king? See, all of us have the same problem that King Herod did. That's why I said it earlier, I can most easily identify with him. Because we all want people to serve us. We all would rather be served than to serve. We all more naturally look to our own interests instead of the interests of others. And we all want to be the king of our own lives. For at the core of the human heart is the impulse that says, hey, no one gets to tell me what to do. No one gets to tell me what to do. But the problem with that mindset is, according to the Bible, the evil and brokenness of the entire world ultimately stems from the self-centeredness of every human heart. And yet, we don't want to give up being king of our own lives, and so we only add to the brokenness of this world. But friends... If Jesus is the true king, if the true king has come, then we, like Herod, must make a decision. For if you want to be king, but Jesus is the king, then one of you, one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on the throne of your life. And so the question is, will you give Jesus the throne? And man, that's a hard question, isn't it? For a huge reason why we don't want to give up the throne of our lives is because we believe we are the most committed to our own good. I don't want to let anyone else tell me what to do or what not to do or how to live because I either think that I know what's best for me or, you know, or at least I just know that I am the most committed and qualified to figuring out what's best for me. Like, I know that I am completely committed to, to my own happiness. And I don't know if anyone else really is, is not as committed to me as I am. And so I don't want to trust anyone else to throw into my life. But friends, the incredibly good news, listen to this, the incredibly good news of Christmas is not just that the king has come. The incredibly good news is what the king is like and what he has come to do. 
And only when you and I realize what he's like will we ever willingly give up the throne of our own lives. So I invite you, look at him. Look at the servant king leaving his throne to serve you to the death in order to accomplish for you what you could never do for yourself. Look at how committed he is to care for you, so committed that he would willingly die for you. Look at him and see how he actually is way more qualified and trustworthy to look out for you than even you are. (laughs) For he has served you in a way that you can never serve yourself. He has come so you can have abundant and eternal life and the salvation of your soul, and the acceptance of God. And he has come so you can have and experience the shalom, the peace that you long for in your relationships and in our community, in our world today, that we, we want so desperately, but we undermine by our own selfishness. He has come to bring about what you could never do for yourself, to serve you in a way that you could never serve yourself. He is more committed to you than even you are. He's more capable of serving you than you are. Look at him. Look at how he has served you. Look at the servant king, my friend. See him leaving his throne to serve you. You can trust him with your life. Crown him your king. Step down off your throne and worship him. And then join him in serving others like he served you. See, the Magi's question for a, before King Herod is the same question that we have to wrestle with today question is, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Is he on the throne of your life? Or are you refusing him the throne? For it's in light of who Jesus is, the great servant king, I want to encourage you to make the decision, if you haven't already, to make the decision right now to relinquish your throne and crown him your king. And as I close in prayer, I want to give you the opportunity to voice that to him right now. And so I'm going to pray, and if you're ready, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray this along with me, quietly before you and God right now, but just to say, God, I want to make you my king. Jesus, you're my king. So let me pray, and if you're willing, pray this along with me. King Jesus, I realize I've been living as if I'm the king of my life. But now I see what an incredible servant king you are. You came to serve me. You left your throne to come and die in my place for my selfishness and sin. You rose again and now you sit on the throne of heaven. I now invite you to sit on the throne of my life and to be my king. Grow my trust in you, that I may willingly obey you and serve others as you have served me. Thank you, my King Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. 
If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.